So it's a communion service this morning, and I love every week, but I, I really love communion service because our focus and our attention is on him, and we recognize what he's done, but it also, it says, remember until he comes again, and so we look forward to the promise of his presence coming again. And so, uh, you know, preaching's a funny thing because you prepare and you, you know, you want to come forward and, and preaching is always God's word to us, myself included. And so when, when you do a good job, I, I remember hearing in seminary years ago, you always want to p- hear people say, not great sermon, but great savior, right? So the goal of preaching is to point people to Jesus. And so when God moves and touches hearts, it's all him. When there's a little bit of a dud, that's all me. We won't blame him for that, right? But I had like a sermon prepped. I was ready to go. I was good. And then sometimes, you know, the Lord will speak to my spirit. Said, no, I got a different word for you. And I sat down. I was just writing. I told Jamie, I said, because I was going to have him preach uh, next week. And then I called him. I said, I think I might have to split this up. I'm going to have to push you off. And, you know, we were talking about it. But I just, I, I just wrote. And so... This is a special sermon because this is the word the Lord has for each of us. And it spoke to me, and I I pray it'll, it'll speak to you. And so the title is Repentance That Leads to Life. Repentance That Leads to Life comes from Acts 11, verse 18, where it says, When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. This was the response of the Jewish church leaders when they heard that Cornelius, a Gentile, had come to faith. And that's really the gospel. The message is, hey, this, this Jesus, this Messiah has come not just for the Jews, not just for the religious folks. Church, Jesus is not just for the people that, you know, the religious people, the people that are getting it right, the people that grew up in the church. It's for all of us. The promise of salvation has come to all of us, granting repentance that leads to life. The gift of salvation through Jesus, not just for some kind of people, but for all kind of people. And so our main text is going to be in the Old Testament today, and we're going to look at King David and his sin with Bathsheba, and I'm going to give you the outline. This is what we're going to look at, because when Paul tells us, and again, we're having communion, but when Paul tells us to examine ourselves, he's saying, search our heart. He's saying, consider those things you ought to repent of. And so I want to focus on that this morning. So we're going to look at this. We're going to look at the sin. Then we're going to look at the confrontation, the correction that comes from God. We're going to look at the effect of sin, the consequence of sin. And then we're going to look at David's repentance and his resulting redemption and obedience. And so I'm going to ask you, I'm going to read the text, and it's a lot of text this morning, but I think you'll see how important it is that we get through it together. And so if you want to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and I pray, Lord, that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and spirits to receive, that you open minds and soften hearts, and Lord, do what only you can do. Father, that no one leaves here with the burden that they came in with. But we leave all of us walking in the freedom that Christ paid so dear a price for. In Jesus' name. So we're going to read the text, and I'm going to to draw out some things. 
And so we see 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning of verse 1. It says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. And so I want to stop right there, and I want to point out some things when we talk about sin. The text began, and it said, at a time when the kings go out to war. And then it said, but David stayed in Jerusalem. So here's one observation we make about sin. Most of the time it happens when we're not doing what we ought to be doing, and we're not where we're supposed to be. David should have been out to war. That was the season. That was the time. That was what he was supposed to be doing, and he wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing, and he wasn't where he was supposed to be. And isn't that how sin works so often? Verse 2, one evening, David got up from his bed, and he walked around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and that woman was very beautiful. Now, point two is David could have stopped there. David could have looked away. David could have went back inside. David had several wives at this point. And I've said before, the reason I know that polygamy wasn't God's intent is because it's mathematically impossible for a man to be wrong more than 100% of the time. (laughs) David wasn't lonely. David could have gone back inside. But we know sin happens and we're tempted and we're enticed and we have the opportunity to say, you know what, you know, I know, I know how this is going to go. And the addiction world used to say, play the whole tape. Because we thought, you know, and, and again, we're all, we're all addicted. Maybe your addiction's not chemical, but we're all addicted to sin. And so it takes, it manifests differently, but we're all addicted. And so the way sin happens is, you know, it's like that. There's a little bit of an enticement. And at any point, we could say, oh, I know how this, I know how this ends. I've been down this road before. Because sometimes you can't, you can't stop what, you know, what comes in front of you, right? You can't, but you can, you can walk away. You can flee David didn't flee. David didn't flee. You've probably heard this quote before. Sin will always take you further than you want to go. It'll always keep you longer than you want to stay. And it'll always cost you more than you want to pay. Ain't that the truth? See, we're in James now in our community groups. We're looking at the book of James. And James chapter 1 verse 13 says this. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. Lord, you put that woman out on the roof. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, verse 14. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desires he is lured away and enticed. That's happening to David. Remember a few weeks back we preached, that said, I said the biggest lie the enemy ever told is you will not surely die. Come on, Eve. I mean, really? That's not going to hurt you. That's not that bad. So the enemy, the enemy comes in and the enticement. But then verse 15 says, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it's full grown gives birth to death. That's how it works. That's how sin works. So it says verse three, rather than, you know, kind of cut his losses, rather than say, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to bed says, verse 3, and David sent someone to find out about her. You know what? 
it can't hurt. I mean, I just, you know, I'm just interested. You know, I'm just, you know, maybe because we justify, right? You know, maybe I just need to find out. Just need to, you know, nothing wrong with that, right? No sin there, no harm there, right? I just need to, you know, instead of walking away, I just need to go a little deeper into my wrong direction. And the man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. All right, David, now what? You got the answer he didn't want. And so what do we do? What do we do when, when, when the red flags start to come, when the Lord starts to show us, bad idea, bad idea? Because we're going to see that every step of the way, David have an opportunity to turn back and to walk a different way. He's married, David. You found out, okay? You got the information. What are you going to do with it, David? See, sometimes sin's planned out. Sometimes, you know, temptation comes, it's in front of us, we follow it. But sometimes we, we got to plan it. Sometimes we got to connive and deceive and organize. Sometimes we got we to figure out some things. I mean, I know, listen, I was a drug addict for 10 years. Master manipulator, master deceiver. That's what sin does, right? And you know what else it does? It isolates us. You can't tell anybody else about this plan you got. You got to keep it secret. Maybe no one's going to know. Maybe no one's going to find out. See, he wanted what he could not have. Because sin is saying, I don't care the consequence. C.S. Lewis once said that if we, if we tasted for a moment real joy, if we understood what real joy in Christ meant, that we wouldn't exchange it for all the pleasure in the world. Well, pleasure is easily attainable. It's right there. And so we substitute. We make the exchange a moment of pleasure for a lifetime of joy. I've said before, sin is a cheap substitute for something better God has for us. Usually it's not, it's not our root desire that's bad. It's the way we go about fulfilling the desire. That's why it's subtle. When, when God has a plan, when he's shown you what he, want, uh, uh, what he wants from your life, and you kind of see the destination, but then you think you get a shortcut, right? Well, you know what, Lord? We're in agreement with where I should go, but I think I can get there a different way. So I'll get back to you. And then watch. We have a get back around years later to the exact same place. And it's, it's like the Lord's going to say, okay. Now what this time? That's what's going to happen to David. I want what I want. Does it matter if she's married? Does it matter that she's off limits? David is not led by wisdom now. He's led by his appetite. He's led by that desire that enticed him. Then David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness, and then she went back home. And the woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Now just a point of note here, and scholars disagree. On the one side, you have scholars who say it was just rape. It was, he, he just raped her. On the other side, you have some scholars who say, oh no, it was, she was tempting him. That's why she was bathing on the roof. Now neither one of those extremes are correct for reasons I'm not going to get into. But here's, at the very least, the most generous reading of the text is this. David abused his power. 
When it says they sent somebody to get her, they didn't say, hey, the king wants you to come over. What do you think? They said, hey, come on, come with me. So at the very least, David's manipulative and he's abusing his power and he's taking what he wants, doesn't matter the cost. So David sent this word to Joab. Knew it was wrong, no doubt. Send me Uriah the Hittite. So now David again, he's the king. There's not really going to be big repercussions. David's not going to really get in trouble here. Uriah, sorry, this is what happened. What's Uriah going to do? David's the king. But David, in his infinite wisdom, says, you know what I'm going to do? I get a plan. I'm not going to cut my losses now. I'm not going to recognize I did something I shouldn't have done, and now look at the result. No, we're going to keep going down this road, because when we're sinning, we think we're smarter than everybody else in the room. Oh, well, I know better. I mean, no, I know that happens to some people, but I got this. I'm in full control. I got a plan. You know how many times you say, you say that to God? I got a plan, Lord. He's like, okay, all right. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent him to David. And when Uriah came down, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. So David's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send for her husband, who's off fighting a war, a war that I should be fighting. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, you know, friend, be friends with him. Hey, buddy, how's the war going? You must be tired. Why don't you go home, light a candle, hang out with your wife? Must have been a while, you know, huh? Manipulative. Hard to believe that David's not after a man after God's own heart. That's what he's doing. That's exactly what's happening here. This is like a, a, a reality show or a soap opera. But this is like this is like conniving, and it's like this is bad stuff. Again, he could have come clean. He had another opportunity not to let things get worse because we do. God and His grace and mercy in our lives. We're in the middle of sin, and God goes, "Here's a way out." Here's a way out. Here's a way out. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. Hey, Uriah, you know what? Go kick back, relax. We got this war for a little while. Go, you know, take a day off. You deserve a day off. Now David's thinking this is going to be great. He's going to go home, sleep with his wife. Everyone's going to think the kid's his. Perfect. Perfect plan, David. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. David's laying it on thick. Yeah, hey, hey, you know, here, I got takeout for you guys, you know. I rented a nice romantic movie for you. There you go, guys. Have a good time. On me, the king. Verse 9 says, But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master servants and did not go down to his house. And so David was told, verse 10, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why did you not go home? Hey, Uriah, like what happened, buddy? Like I set this whole thing up. I gave you some time off. You go home. Like why why would you, what's the deal with you, Uriah? Verse 11, Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. My commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will never do such a thing. 
See, Uriah was behaving like a nobleman. Position does not an honorable man make. And Uriah showed the king what kind of man he was. No, 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 king, you don't understand. The presence of God is in a tent. My men are fighting. They're saying, you know, they don't have the best lodging. How could I, as their leader, how can I go and spend time with my wife and sit back and be comfortable when these men are dying, they're fighting a war? I would never do anything like that. Now you think, surely at this point, David would go, man, this is, this is a good guy. I mean, it'd be different if it was like Uriah was a jerk, right? I mean, let's be honest. Right? It'd be different if it was like unlikable. David, David you, got, you got another chance here. Look at the kind of man he is. He's a good man. He's an honorable man. He's a man who's doing the right thing, David. But in the evening... I'm sorry, verse 12. Then David sent him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. So now David's like, you know what? This guy, he's, he's using his brain. He's too, you know, he's too wise. I know what I'm gonna do. Hey, buddy, how about you come over? I'll open my best bottle of scotch. Me and you, we'll hang out. You know, we'll have a good time. Just a couple of the guys. And then David's saying, I'm gonna get him drunk. Then he's gonna go home. Because, you know, David's on this path now. There's no turning back. There's no, you know what, Uriah? Like, I I got a confession to make. Nope. No, David's still in his grandmaster plan here. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep in his mat among his master's servants, and he did not go home. Even in his drunkenness, Uriah knew no, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to sleep with the servants. I'm not, I'm not going to do that thing. Again, David could have been like, man, this guy, you know, he's a good guy. But no, because when we walk in the light, the enemy has no power over us, right? When we confess our sins, he has no power over us. But when we're in the dark, when we're alone and isolated, the enemy just keeps in there. No, no, no. You got this, David. Let's, 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 let's try a different strategy, David. See, David was listening to a voice. It just wasn't the voice of God. And so now, verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is fiercest and withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Here we have our man David, a man after God's own heart. And he gives this guy, this good, honorable guy, a letter. And Uriah is delivering his own death sentence. He's carrying a letter that that pronounces his death. That's giving instructions to have him killed. And he doesn't even know it. David, David, David. Our man, David. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. 
So Joab sent David a full account of the battle, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king the account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, why do you get so close to the city to fight? In other words, when you explain to the, to the king what's happening with the battle, and when you explain what we did, and the king in his right mind goes, why would you do that? That's not a good strategy. Just let him know that, oh, by the way, the deed is done. Oh, by the way, just so you know, king, before you get too angry, this was the way we had Uriah killed. Who killed Ambalek, the son of Jerobesha? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. And so the messenger set out. And when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. And the messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and they came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall and some of the king's men died. And moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. And then David, verse 25, told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. So David's like, hey, you know, let him know. That's what happens in battle. Some people die. I mean, what are you going to do? Verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David did has, had done... The thing David had done displeased the Lord, you think? Like, which part? All because he saw her taking a bath on the roof. And at any point, he could have said, you know what, this has gone too far. But now there's a man dead. There's a wife mourning. There's lie after lie. He involves somebody else in his murderous plot because you know when we're, when we're knee deep in it, right? When we're sinning, you know you gotta involve everybody else in it. Can't just do it alone. See, that was part one. That was the sin. And now comes part two. Now we're gonna look at the, the confrontation. We're gonna look at the correction. Because we know Proverbs 3.12 said, the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father the son he delights in. Funny, I don't see that on bumper stickers and t-shirts. Got all kind of scriptures we put out there, but I don't see, the Lord disciplines those he loves. I don't see that. We don't like that one. But what do you do as parents if you have kids? You discipline your kids. Why? Not because you don't love them, because you do. And sometimes they understand. Sometimes they will understand. Sometimes maybe they'll never understand. But you do it because you care about them. You do it because you want what's best for him. If you didn't care, you wouldn't discipline him at all. So we, we understand as parents, of course the Lord disciplines those he loves. Any good father would do that. See, the two most prominent kings in Israel throughout the scriptures are Saul and David. They were both chosen by God. They both had a whole bunch of promise. And yet one of them 
was known as a king that God opposed, and one of them was a king after God's own heart. And why is that? Because they both did some horrible stuff, some unexcusable stuff. They weren't, they weren't little white lies. They weren't little baby sins. They were big, grievous, offensive sins. They were an obvious offense to God. They were in utter disregard for what he wanted. And yet David was a man after God's own heart, and Paul was, and Saul was rejected by God. One was cursed and one was blessed. What's the difference? And so this should encourage us because as we come into our communion service, a lot of people, even church people, that have this false notion, God can't use me because you don't know what I've done. God can't use me because you don't know how big of a sin I've committed. God can't use me because you don't know the kind of past I've had. And so my prayer, as I stand here, the burden of my heart, because you're here and you just think you're here and you're just another Sunday, this is what you do, and, but you're here because God wants each of us to experience true life. And there's not a person in this room that doesn't have something to repent of. But see, the enemy wants to keep you thinking that your past is too much. But your past, my past, doesn't compare to the blood of Jesus. There's nothing that we've done or could do that separates us from the love of God. See, the difference between these two kings was their response when they were confronted with their sin. And so here's a promise. 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, that's a condition. It means if. That means we have a part to play. If we confess our sins, and here's the thing, right? It's a sincere confession. We're going we're gonna to look more about that. But that doesn't mean like, you know, your kids, they do something, and then you say, all right, apologize. And like, heard I'm sorry. Like, no, like a real apology. I'm fine, I'm sorry. No, no, like you mean, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> Not that kind of confession. Like a real, I know what I've done, I own it. I'm sorry. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just and he will forgive our sins and he will purify us from all unrighteousness. There's no asterisk. There's no fine print. It doesn't say he's going to forgive all of your sin except that. It doesn't say he's going to cleanse you from most unrighteousness. It says that if you confess your sins to him, that when he looks at you, he will see Jesus standing there. That the righteousness of Christ will be what God sees when he looks at your sin and my sin because of what Jesus has done. That's what that means. And so if you are here and you believe the lie that the enemy can't use you or that somehow your past disqualifies you, you've never read the Bible. Because I can show you person after person in the Bible. Well, if it was up to me, like Peter, I would have been like, you're fired. 
And, and Jesus, he could have just been like, all right, you can hang out with us, but you know what? You got a place in the back now. And Jesus was like, you know what, Peter? Because you understood repentance, because you understood what it means to confess, because you've put your trust and faith in me, I'm gonna make you a leader. That, that's my plan. Somebody should be like, Jesus, wait a minute. I mean, Peter, you know, he's kind of unreliable. Maybe we should get somebody else. God look, the man looks at the outward appearance and God looks at the heart. There's nothing you've done. There's nothing I've done. See, Saul's problem wasn't his sin. It was his response to his sin. When Saul disobeyed God's command and Samuel confronted him, you know what Saul did? He took a page out of Adam and Eve's playbook. Well, it's not my fault. It's not that big of a deal. Minimize, deflect. That's what we do, right? I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. See, thank God. You know, Pastor Jamie and I, we've been friends for 33 years. And thank God that I have somebody like him in my life here. Because he knows me so well, and so what happens is, sometimes he'll close the door, and, he'll, and I can tell. I can tell by his demeanor. Can, I, can we talk? I'm like, now, you know what I could do is I could say, no, we can't. Beat it. Get out of my office. I could say that. But I know his heart. I know that he loves me. I know that God's using him in my life. So we can, we can come up with all kinds of excuses why we don't want to receive correction from somebody. And we can, the worst thing we can do is we can default to our position. I don't have to listen to you. And most of the time when God brings correction, it's a lot of times they'll use our spouse. And we can dismiss that and we can silence that and use discernment because you know, I'm not talking about people who always criticize you. I'm talking about the people in your inner circle, the people close to you that God uses. See, Saul didn't want to hear the truth. Saul wanted to be surrounded by people who would co-sign. Yeah, you know, Saul, you're not that bad. Rather than owning up to his sin, Saul tries to justify. Rather than asking for forgiveness in pride, he behaves the same way Adam and Eve did. And he doesn't take ownership. He doesn't respond to correction. And that's what makes all the difference. See, in 2 Samuel, verse 12, it says the Lord sent Nathan to David. Because, you know, the Lord will send somebody to speak life and truth to you. I love when people say, I respond to God's correction. I listen to the authority of God. I just don't listen to anybody else at all in my life. No, that's not how that works. You know how God uses the people in your life. When he came to him, he said this, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb and he had bought. And he raised it up and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, it drank from his cup, it even slept in his arm. It was like a daughter to him. Sat in the stage, Nathan. Talking about the good man Uriah was. He didn't have a lot, but he was faithful with it. He, he cherished it. He did what he was supposed to do. He didn't look at what he didn't have. He was grateful for what he did have. 
But a traveler came to the rich man, and the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. He had more than he needed, but rather than take with, from what he had, he took from what somebody else had, all they had. Because, you know, when you're hell-bent on sinning, it doesn't matter. You don't care about the effect it has on somebody else. It doesn't matter what's good and just. It only matters what you want. Verse 5 said, David burned with anger against the man, and he said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this much must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over, because he did such a thing, and he had no pity. How could anyone do that? David's anger was justified. He's right. But thank God for his mercy and grace. Thank God we don't get what we deserve, do we? Verse 7, then Nathan said to David, you are the man. I'm talking about you, David. You know, sometimes we come here and we hear a sermon and you're like, oh, I can't wait. You know, my wife has got to hear this. God's talking to you right now and me. Talking to you, David. Now, David could have been like, okay, Nathan, you're fired. Kick rocks. I don't want to hear from you. Beat it. You're all done here. Could have done that. He's the king. I mean. But he recognized, David recognized that, no, 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 this is God's man. This is not a message from some man. This is a message from the Lord. You know why David knew that too? Because deep down inside, it had to have been eating away at him. And we're going to see that it was. You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arm. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. You know, when I first read the scripture for, for the first time, I was in Teen Challenge. And God had saved me from death. He had begun to restore my marriage. My kids were visiting me. He had done an amazing work in my heart. I had surrendered for the first time. He had done so much. And I was in a place where I'm like, okay, maybe eight, nine months in. All right, Lord, I appreciate that. I appreciate all that you've done. I get a plan now, though. I'm pretty sure I got it from here. And so I'm going to take over. I mean, you know, I'll let you know if I need you, and I appreciate you and all that. But, but I think I got this now, God. There's some things I want, I want to get back. You know, I got to start thinking of a job. And, and you know, my wife, I got to make sure that we're gonna, our marriage is going to stay intact. And I got to take everything back into my own hands now, Lord. And I read the scripture. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I saved you in your addiction. I began to restore your marriage. And then this line. And if that had been too little, I would have given you even more. And I remember reading that and I just wept. Because God was saying, you know, look what I've done in your life. Saying to David, look what I've done in your life, David. And if, and if you take, if you had that desire, if you thought you lacked something, if you thought you somehow needed more, if you had only brought that to me, 
If you had only come to me because of my love, I would have done even more for you. Don't you know how much better my plans are than your plans? He says that to us. I've done all these things in your life. And instead, in response, you look around and you see things you think you need or you think you want, and you forget what I've done. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Because, you know, sometimes in confrontation, sometimes we got to hear stuff we don't want to hear. Sometimes we got to hear our sin right before us. This is what you did. And we can say, well, yeah, but, yeah, but, oh, no, but, well, yeah, but, no, I mean, it wasn't. No, no, like this, this is it. I'm going to lay it out for you. This is what you did, David, Brian, church. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and you took a wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before you, before all of Israel. God's saying, you were so concerned with your reputation, David. You, didn't, you weren't concerned with your offense to me. You were concerned with everybody else, what they thought. Well, you know what they're going to think now, David? Because even though we're going to see God's grace and mercy, there's an effect. There's a consequence of sin. It doesn't mean because we repent and say sorry that everything gets wiped away. And sometimes we, we repent and we say I'm sorry for that reason. Because we're not really sorry we offended God. We're sorry for the effects of our sin. We're sorry we got in trouble or we got arrested or our girlfriend or boyfriend or spouse is upset. We're not really sorry because we sinned. And we think, well, maybe if we repent, then God will put it all back together. Maybe the effects will be wiped away. But you know what? Consequences have, sin has real consequences. Lives are affected Judgment, because even in God's grace and mercy, there's judgment. And here's the text that makes all the difference in the world. David's the king. Could have been like Saul. Ignored the advice. Ah, you know, you know what? I don't care. I'm the king. Do whatever I want. Because we do that. You know, all of sin is basically telling God, I know better than you. That's what all of sin is. I'm the king. People either acknowledge that there's a God or they say, I'm God. Deep down inside, that's what happens. No, I'm God. I got this. See, God often uses people we trust and love to bring correction. In verse 15, this is, this is the, the key point in, in everything I'm talking about here. This is the one scripture that makes all the difference in the world. And it will make all the difference in the world in your life and my life. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Not, 
sorry, but oh my God, look what I've done. Psalm 51, we hear David's heart in response to this. And I want to read it. And you, can, you don't have to read it with me. You can read it after. You can close your eyes. You can sit there and listen. But my prayer as we prepare and get ready for communion is that this is the cry of all of our hearts. And I'm going to pull some things out of this, and I think we can relate to it. I think it's so true deep down inside. See, the Bible contains truth that's just beyond intellectual truth. That's spiritual heart truth. David begins, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. Not only is that a great confession, but David is confessing his understanding of, I know who you are, God. I know that if you forgive me, I'll be white as snow. I know that only you can forgive me. I know that I've only sinned against you. I know that at the end of the day, it's not about my reputation. It's not about pleasing man. I know it's just about you, Lord. It's about me and you, nobody else. You and I here in this room, each one of us, when we have a time, there'll be an altar call before communion. It's not about anybody else. It's about you and the Lord. For I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. Because remember what we said before? When you got that unconfessed, unrepentant sin, when the enemy keeps telling you, that identifies you with your sin, this is who you are. You compare yourself to everybody else. God can't use me because I'm this, I'm this, I'm this. It's always before you. It's all you think about. What if somebody finds out about it? Everybody, right? It's always before you. You can't escape it. That's what what this is saying. That's what David's saying. My sin, my transgressions, they're always right here, Lord. I can't get away from them. I can't pretend they're gone. So what do you do? You're here right now in that place. What do you do? You allow the enemy to keep telling you, see, that's why you're never going to be used of God, because of your past. But that's not true. That's not the gospel. The gospel is you'll be used of God despite your past if you confess it to him. If you throw yourself at the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, that's the gospel. God doesn't use good people because none of us are good. God forgives bad people and he makes them good. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so you're right in your verdict. And you are justified when you judge. Not only is David not making excuses, David's going, you know what? I was wrong and you're right. And whatever judgment you pronounce is just and perfect judgment. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. You had a plan for my life even before I was born. And you, you began to unfold that. You gave me wisdom. And I knew better. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. And I love this. Verse 8 says, let me hear joy and gladness. Gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. David is going, I know I can't be filled with joy while this, while this is before me. 
See, I don't want anybody to leave here the same way you walked in. I don't want you to leave here with the same burden. But if you do, say, oh, someday I'm going to repent. Someday. You know, God's, God's working in my life in this area, but I'm not ready to give that up now. You know what? You're never going to have joy. You're going to go around a joyless Christian, an oxymoron if there ever was one, because you're holding on, not because of your sin, but because your refusal to acknowledge it. And you're going to leave here and you're not going to have joy. And that breaks my heart. Because it doesn't have to be that way. Because before we take communion and Willie prays, whether you come up to the altar or when you stay in your seat, I pray each of our prayers, Lord, search me. Search my whole heart. Not my whole heart except that one place. God, I'm going to let you in even to that place. Create in me a pure heart, O oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. And I love this, verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. God, I want to be joyful again. You know, people say, you know, when I was first a Christian, I was on fire. I was excited. I loved Jesus. I was happy. And now, uh, you know, I just, I can't do it. And I, you know, I keep doing this and I'm, you know, I'm caught up in this and I'm just, I'm just, you know, I don't know. I'm a mess. And what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Tomorrow's not promised. God has you here right now. God has me here right now for this moment right now. David said, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. God, not only do I want to be joyful again, but you know what? I need you. You got to sustain me. I can't do it. What does Paul say? Here's how I explain that you, I got this whole Christian thing figured out. No, Paul goes, I keep doing the stuff I don't want to do, the stuff I don't want to do. I, I keep doing the stuff I don't want to do, the stuff I'm supposed to do, I don't do. And then what does Paul say? I give up. I look at Peter. Peter's better than me. Or I look at, no. Paul's like, thank you for Jesus Christ because without him I'd have no hope. David is saying, Lord, you, you restore me. The Bible says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. I've heard it said once, if you're not as close to God as you once were, who moved? Because he didn't. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, verse 13, so that sinners will turn back to you. Lord, if you restore the joy of my salvation, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to keep doing my ministry. I'm going to tell everybody else. Because that's, that's a true repentant heart is now immediately what happens. You have the joy of the salvation. You know what you want to do? You want to share with other people, hey, brother, sister, you don't have to be stuck. You don't have to let the enemy rob you of your joy. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you, God, who are my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord. And my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, you God, will not despise. You know what he's saying? The response to my sin isn't, I'm going to write a bigger check this week. I'm going to serve more. I'm going to show up for every single thing they have at church. And I'm going to do it with the same heart. 
David's saying, you know what you want? You know what the ultimate thing I can give to you? A contrite heart. An honest to goodness, I'm sorry. That's all you want from me, God. It's funny how easy it is to do everything else but that. The one thing he wants. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteousness and burnt offerings offered whole and bulls will be offered on your altar. Then those things I do will be pleasing to you because they'll have been done with the right motives. Then when I serve and give and love, I'm not doing it out of religious exercise. I'm not doing it to gain your approval. I'm doing it out of a response for my love for you and your love for me. My ministry will be where it needs to be. Then we go back to our text, 2 Samuel 12, verse 13. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. Good news, David. He has God's grace and mercy in your life. He's not going to kill you. But, kind of some bad news. But because by doing this you've shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. Because there's judgment. And because there's consequence. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. And David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food for them. David is mourning, and he's fasting and praying, but you know what? The child dies. Because sometimes, even if we do the right thing, and even if we plead with God, his ways are greater than our ways. It, David didn't say, well, that was wrong, God. He doesn't know. He just trusts that God knows what he's doing. But there was a consequence of David's sin. There is a consequence of our sin. And God's grace and mercy, he forgives us. But those effects, those relationships that were severed, those people that were harmed, sometimes that takes time. And you know what? Sometimes there's not restoration. Sometimes those relationships are severed forever. It doesn't mean you're not forgiven. It doesn't mean you're not loved. But it means that that's how that works. And on the seventh day, the child died. And, and so David's fasting and praying, and he won't eat. And they're thinking, like, we can't even tell him that the kid died because if he's already this distraught and the kid's alive, what's going to happen? And so they don't want to tell him, but he notices it on their face. He says, the child died, and they say yes. And he gets up, and he washes up, and he basically begins to say, all right, well, I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. Not well, God, because you didn't do this, then all bets are off, because we do that sometimes too, right? So they said, you know, what is this? You were mourning, and he said, look, I was mourning, I was playing, I was praying, but, you know, he's gone. There's, there's nothing I can do except for the next best thing, except for now doing the right thing. And David comforted his wife Bathsheba, verse 24. And he went to her and made love to her. And she gave birth to a son. And they named him Solomon. And the Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah, which means loved by the Lord and beloved. And I want to draw some things out of that because what started out as sinful, David said, God says, okay, I'm going to meet you in your mess. 
what you did displeased me, but you know what? Now you're going to do the right thing. Now you're going to cherish her and love her and take care of her. And you know what? Your sin's not going to stop my plan from going forward. Because he meets us in our mess. Okay, now let's pick up the pieces and let's do the right thing. God has redeemed David and Bathsheba. And they're able to move forward because God meets us in our mess and he makes a way. And David's sin wasn't going to stop God's plan. And neither will our sin if we repent. And then verse 26 says this, Meanwhile, Joab fought against Rabbah the Ammonites and captured the royal citadel. And Joab then sent messengers to David saying, I have fought against Rabbah and taken its water supply. Now muster the rest of the troops and besiege the city and capture it. Otherwise, I will take the city and it will be named after me. Now here's something to note and it's easy to miss in the text. You know what battle Joab's in right now? The battle that David was supposed to be fighting. You can read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 10. And you know what he's saying? Okay, David, now you know what you need to do? Now you need to be what you're supposed to be doing what you're supposed to be doing. And if you're not, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to tell her everybody's going to be singing praises to Joab instead of David. That's what he's saying. That's what the text says here. All right, David, now why don't you do the right thing now? Or you know what? If not, so David mustered the entire army and went to Rabbah and attacked and captured it. He took the crown from the king's head. It was placed on his own head. See, David now begins to do what he's supposed to be doing. He doesn't respond by by sending someone else. He doesn't shirk his responsibilities. Doesn't say, you know what, Joab, you take care of it. I'm going to stay. I think maybe I'll go for a walk tonight on the roof again. No. He's like, you know what? I'm going to go do what I'm supposed to be doing. But he learned from his mistake. See, David serves as a model of true repentance. David owns his sin and he's broken and he asks for forgiveness and he receives restoration. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. In Matthew 5, 3, when Jesus begins a sermon on the mount, He opens with the Beatitudes, and the first tells us this powerful truth. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The entryway to the kingdom of heaven is a full acknowledgement that we desperately need him. That we are in spiritual poverty apart from God. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. Those who enter the kingdom of heaven are those who repent like David not who refuse to take responsibility with prideful hearts like Saul. See, 2 Corinthians 10, 17 says, for the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads away from sin and it results in salvation. And there's no regret from that kind of sorrow. It's not a worldly sorrow that keeps you from leaving the house or that keeps you in the bar room or that keeps you from doing what God wants to do in your life. You throw a pity party No, that's worldly sorrow. We know that. And in our lives, I'm sure we've all exhibited a little of that. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. And the sorrow God wants is to experience us away from sin and results in salvation. David 
sought to live in obedience and surrender. And he made mistakes. But he knew what true repentance was. And David, his sin was a part of his story. My sin, your sin, my addiction will always be a part of my story. But it's not my whole story. Your sin is not your whole story. It's not how it ends. Don't let your sin define you. Don't let your past define you. We have an opportunity now as the worship team is going to play and then Willie's going to come up. And and again, whether you stay in your seat, whether you come up to the altar, but I pray that every single person in this room receives that repentance that leads to life. That you don't make excuses, that you don't wait till next time. God, would you just meet us here in this place? Lord, would you just do what only you can do, God? You have captivated and captured our hearts this morning because you love us. And even if it's a word that's hard for us to hear, God, we need to hear it. And so would you have your way? God, we believe you'll fulfill your promise and you'll forgive us and you'll restore to us that joy This morning, would you do that for every single person in this room? We love you, and we praise you. Amen.